Voice America Variety Channel. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As most of you know, you can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 live, and at the end of the day, we archive the show. Joining me this morning is Cheryl Cohen-Green, author of An Intimate Life, Sex, Love, and My Journey as an Intimate Partner. Also joining me is author Dara Lynn Weiss, and her new book is The Heavy, A Mother, a Daughter, a Diet, a Memoir. Uh, Cheryl Cohen-Green has been in private clinical practice. She's my first guest, and she's been a surrogate partner and consultant in human sexuality since 1973. She was trained in the Masters and Johnson modality. Uh, for many of you who don't know what a surrogate is, surrogate partnership um, as a profession was first developed by, as I said, Masters and Johnson actually in the 60s. And since its inception, which was quite a while ago, it still remained in the shadows. And An Intimate Life, which is Cheryl's book, offers a candid look into the personal and professional life of a surrogate partner. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Cheryl. Oh, it's nice to be on, Catherine. Before we went on the air, I noticed your Boston accent <laughs> very <laughs> clearly. It's hard um, not to. <laughs> yes, and I have to identify, my, identify myself, even though I'm in New York now, I have to identify as a New Englander, so I thought I'd mention that. I like but that. <laughs> your book, which is An Intimate Life, Sex, Love, and My Journey as a Surrogate Partner, um, kind of just jumped out at me because, first of all, I saw the movie The Sessions with Helen Hunt, which is uh-huh. you, you are the surrogate partner who is portrayed in the movie, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes, is, I'm very lucky. Helen Hunt, I love Helen Hunt, so I, I couldn't be happier. No, and you two kind of look alike. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I think we have similar faces, my forehead particularly. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. All right, yeah. but for those who haven't seen the sessions, who don't know the movie, um, let's talk about, I mean, what a surrogate partner is, because that's what the book is about, your life as a surrogate partner for, since, right. what, 1973. So, uh, you know, I'm a social worker. I was part of that movement in the 70s. I wasn't a surrogate partner, but certainly as a social worker, I was aware of that movement. So, mm-hmm. for, for, yeah, for those who aren't, what is a surrogate partner? Okay. You started uh, with a great explanation. Masters and Johnson started their clinic, oh, in the early 60s after they were doing all their research. And they... Uh, had couples come in. In, uh, in the very beginning, it was, um, I'm assuming they didn't work with gay couples, but I think they did at the very end. But they provided a new form of therapy, and that was a, a, a therapist, a male, let's say they had a male and a female couple, they had a female therapist and a male therapist. And I was told then that it was so that the pe- person who came in with the presenting concern, the this is this is the person that was pre- was de- designated to having a problem, um, their partner 
who had somebody they could relate to and their, the other partner uh, with the concern could have somebody of the same gender. And it worked beautifully. But then they started getting contacts from people who were single. And in the beginning it was just single men and these men didn't have partners or couldn't find somebody to go with them to, to do this process. And so can I interrupt you right now just so that people are, the listeners understand, we're talking of people who identify as having sexual problems, which could be a whole array of things. So you're saying in oh, the beginning... It was couples who would come in who were having problems uh, in the bedroom, and now they began to find that you know that there were individuals who were having problem in the bedroom. So, we, okay, I just wanted yes, to explain exactly. That. Yeah, exactly. And they had trained people who volunteered mostly in the beginning. They were all volunteers, and then uh, once they've created the profession, but they created. Uh, they train people to help the person coming in, the single person coming into their clinic, uh, and be their partner, and that. That continued on, um, and it's continued to this day, that there are surrogates partners for people who either don't have a partner or don't have a partner who's willing to go into therapy and work with them on a particular issue. And that's usually the issues are um, not being able to have erections, and this we call it ED, but I just, I hate labels, so I always... But ED is on the, in the news now. It's all advertising, right? For ED, it's if you have oh, the ED problem, yeah. you're supposed to get drugged or take some kind of medication. For Always, it. yeah. Immediately, yeah. we want to fix it with a pill, or yeah. we want to fix it with medication, some other kind. Then we have people who come in and they're concerned around. They have rapid ejaculation. Then there are people who come in with delayed ejaculation, and delayed ejaculation is they're not having a part, an orgasm with a aren't an ejaculation because we know those are two separate things, but they don't have ejaculations with partners. Uh, they can alone, but not with partners. And then we have people who have lack of desire, people who come in lack of sexual desire, people who come in and they have uh, um, have never had an intercourse, and they have also people who have never have, but they haven't had good experiences, so they backed away. They don't want to seem clumsy and awkward. Um, so there's that range. And then and when the uh, and probably in my Maybe my fifth year of being a surrogate, um, I started working with people who had disabilities. My first client was a man who was injured in a car accident. He was a paraplegic, paralyzed from the waist down. Then I started with Mark O'Brien in 1984. I started working with him, and he was a quadriplegic, but he wasn't paralyzed. He had polio, and the polio had destroyed his muscles. That's the horrible thing about polio, although it does leave you with sensation, and Mark had sensations all over his body, I mean, pleasurable and, you know, like everybody else. Yes. And then and I Mark O'Brien, who... also we want to just oh, uh, sure. emphasize he's, Mark O'Brien is the character, not that he is the real person in the book, who you, uh, the movie is based on his life or his, his experience with you as a surrogate partner. Yes, yes, and he, um, he is, Mark O'Brien has since uh, died, and that was in 1999. We met each other actually in 1986. Um, and then I work with people with cerebral palsy, people with spinal bifida, people with, oh, you know, um, quadriplegia from accidents, um, all the range of disabilities that you can imagine, brain injured, um, autistic, mostly Asperger's clients, a wide, wide range. It's spread out over the years since I began my, my practice in 1993. So, so how did them. you begin? How did, like, a good, and having read your book, a good Catholic <laughs> girl from Boston yeah. get involved in surrogacy where, yeah. Well, this good Catholic, ex-Catholic girl. Ex-Catholic uh, girl. Yes. I grew up in, you know, I'm, I'm 68 years old. I was born in 1944. I started 
parochial school in 1949 um, in Salem, Massachusetts. And I was, my parents sent me to this parochial school, and what I was learning was, um, you know, I had religious classes, and I learned very quickly that there were sins of impurity. And I remember not wanting to hear what sins were. And I don't, I know I wasn't uh, masturbating when I was six, but when I discovered it again, and I had this feeling when I discovered it that I had, I knew about this, but I, had, I thought to myself, why did I stop doing this? Anyway, I discovered this, and I went to confession because I was good Catholic, and I realized that this wasn't okay in the eyes of the church. And I didn't lie in confession. I'd go every week to a different Catholic church in Salem. We had about five Catholic churches, so I wouldn't have to talk to the same priest. You know, Every five weeks, I'd come back to the, the priest that I had originally. And, and that felt awful to me. When I was 17 and a half, I went into confession, and I told the priest what I was, about, what I was doing with my boyfriend. And he told me that it was girls like me that ruined young boys' lives. And I said to him, what about my life, Father? And he didn't have an answer, and he started launching into my penance. And I just stepped out of the confessional and walked out of church. And I never went to confession again. And believe me, it wasn't easy because I had a lot of attachment to the ritual. And, you know, I was in the choir all through grammar school. And, I, you know, I really loved the ritual of the church. I didn't believe, I started not to believe in the things that they were saying that, you know, that the things that were natural, and I, I sensed intuitively that this is natural to explore your own body. Anyway, I, a year later, I was about a year and a half later, I met Michael Cohen, who I married when I was 19. He was 23. And he looked at me, and when he asked me why, what did I feel? You know, I was ashamed of my body. I was ashamed of my sexuality. He said to me, Cheryl, there is no God that's going to put you, throw you in hell. There is no God that's less compassionate than you are. And was Michael thought, Cohen Jewish? Yes, yes. Yes, he was Jewish. He was I'm Jewish. thinking because that's the community that I grew up in. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you saw her in the movie, I Converted to Judaism. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. When I was 23 years old. I was actually uh, pregnant with my second child, and I brought my daughter. At the, my daughter was three, so we were in the mix together. So that part of the story was different. But um, we did. I did convert to Judaism, and I, I converted because I love my in-laws so much. They were so accepting and loving of me, and I thought, wow, it would be interesting to learn more about Judaism. You know, I, I feel like I was getting a pass into the club. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, sure, we were listening to your story, and you went, you know, and you know, I can't think the processes that you went through. I had a friend who did a similar thing, um, and she ended up leaving the church for reasons that you've described: talking to the priest, feeling, you know, and a lot of it, feeling ashamed of who you are as a woman in your body. But it's a yeah. big leap, and then marrying a Jewish guy, but then it's a huge leap to becoming a surrogate from that. Right. Well, it is a huge leap, but, you know, he was one of the most open people I'd ever met. I never, I, I, and compared to him, the people that I dated were boys in high school, and they were my age, and here he was about four years older. He had a lot of experience in life. Was he a great lover? Fantastic. And, <laughs> and I, he took time, and he talked to me. He knew I was embarrassed about nudity, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't shut the lights off. And, you know, he just really, he was, the, he, I married him for 
probably all the wrong reasons, as people say. You know, mm-hmm. you marry somebody just because you have a great, great orgasms with yes. him. But I had communication with him, and as as I'll say, tell you, that that led to us moving to Berkeley. I not only left the church, but then I packed up my two little kids. One was ten weeks old, and the other was three. Drove across country in '68 in a van. We were the classic hippies. Mm-hmm. Landed in San Francisco. Um, and literally landed. We had a bad car accident, we, um, which which changed my life because if I I was injured badly and I had to work stop focusing on my body and learning how to take care of it better than most people do. Usually you get to that when you're in your 30s, but when you break your right. neck and you have fractured vertebrae, you have to deal with that. And um, Michael so and I, I want to know what opening. the pivotal. I'm going to interrupt you because. I want sure. to know what the pivotal moment was when I'm you thought... I'm just getting to that. I'm sorry, uh, I, 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 I ran a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I, um, in 1969, uh, he said that he wanted to have an open marriage. And that was that just blew me away. I, I, you know, I thought, what are you talking about? Anyway, we delved into that, and I realized I learned a lot from it. I learned what I did like, what I don't like, and then... In 1973, oh, I did nude modeling in art colleges to get over, to make a little extra money, but also to get over nudity, embarrassment about nudity. And I was given a book by a friend who, um, it's called The Surrogate Wife, and it was about a woman in, uh, in St. Louis who had worked with Masters and Johnson with nine co- clients. And I, she said, I think you'd be good at this because she knew me well, and she said, I, you have that kind of compassion. And I read it, and I thought, oh, my God. But in the same moment, that right as I was finishing that, I found out about San Francisco sex information. I found out about a surrogate. And that's a switchboard in the city where you can call and just get referrals and you can, you know, talk to people. You don't, they don't do therapy, but they're amazing. And I joined their classes and got trained by them. Then I met a therapist. Uh, the surrogate gave me the names of two therapists. I interviewed with both of them. One of them was looking to work with another surrogate. He started me on a training. That's where I got my Masters in Johnson training. He and I went for a two-week course together in conjoint therapy, only they applied what we they did with couples with me, with the, the male clients that I worked with. And I was, uh, that was it. And I so what are the kinds of questions, again. I mean, people are always, you know, sometimes they will surrogate, then you're involved, you know, it's just mm-hmm. having sex with a client, and how do you, awesome. and how do you not get involved with that client, how do they not get involved with you? I mean, the movie yeah. really did, I think, portray that quite well, and. Very well. It did. It did yeah. betray it. But, but I, I, you don't fall in love with every client. You fall. You, I fall in like with people. I meet fabulous people. None of them. But you're repelled by the client. Let's say you're the. Per, I let's don't say you have a client. You know, let's give an example because I think that really. I'm is not. A, you know, the only person I've ever been repelled by was the pedophile that I worked with, and that and I've worked with more than one pedophile. But this man was a sociopath, and he was scary. And his skin was clammy, and he had sort of a purple tinge to his mouth. The, he, he was frightening. And I just held, I, I stayed composed as he told me these horrible stories and things that he had done in the past and what he was planning to do. That was scary. And, and I don't know how the therapist didn't pick up on that this man had no remorse. But I did and immediately called. As soon as I got him out the door, I called the therapist and I told her that what he was doing and what he was about to do. And, you know, she had to call the authorities. That was what the is only the typical, time. What is it, like, Cheryl, what is a typical example? You get a referral from, let's say, a social worker, I guess, or a psychologist or whomever. Uh, psychiatrist, this, psychologist, you know. Who, and let's take have, somebody with a, um, with, well, both, you know, somebody maybe who, um, 
isn't physically disabled necessarily, who has erectile dysfunction, the therapist yeah. calls up and says, <clears throat> you know, um, refers them to you. What happens? That's the process. Well, most of my clients are not physically disabled. They're just, you know, uh, probably emotionally disabled mm-hmm. like we all are around our sexuality. Exactly. But the, client, the therapist will call me. They'll tell, give me a brief history. We'll chat. Uh, the client will then call me, and then we set a time to meet. And we, the, the sessions are two hours, so we meet and we talk. We, they ask me any questions that they might have. I ask them questions. I explain the process to them and explain already it's been explained that we're not, he's not coming to have sex with me. What he's coming to do is learn the steps to getting, becoming relaxed, learn how to communicate, learn how to touch, learn how to be touched, and learn safer sex practices at some point. But it's all about taking away his anxiety so that he can understand why he has uh, good experiences and why he isn't having them. And the therapist and I work together with the client as a team. I see the th- client once every uh, other week, and the therapist, this is how it happens. Sometimes we do intensives and people come in, and I see them for every day of the week. But most often it's every other week, and then the therapist sees them on the in-between week, and I make sure I report to the therapist everything that happened, everything that was said during the sessions that I'm having with the client. And it's a gradual increase of intimacy from communication, the first session, talking, experience, asking questions. If the client's comfortable, we'll go in the bedroom, we'll get the nudity out of the way, get undressed, lie down, take them through a a whole experience of relaxation of their whole body, and then I do sensual touch and ask them to stay as present as possible and I explore them from the backside first and then the front. And when I'm all done, we lie down together and I ask how much of the time were they present and how, what did they notice, where they were neutral, nurtured, sensual, and sexual feelings. And that is, that's the first session. And we so gradually... how successful, I was going to say in terms of your clients, because, boy, you've had yeah. so much experience over the years. First yeah. of all, how successful is it? Usually, I mean, in terms of, you know, do you help people? And I would imagine it's successful, and this is um, because you are not emotionally connected so that it, it takes out all the emotional stuff that a lot of the, I would imagine, your clients are struggling with, right? Yeah, Catherine, one of the things is I, I take away, I help them understand why they get emotional in the anxiety way of emotion. But he, the client and I, develop a, a relationship over that time. And we, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like all relationships do. There is emotion that happens. People cry with me. People feel happy. People, you know, people go through the gambit. They feel like, some people feel like they love me. And what, and that's all understandable and that's healthy. And we, the therapist and I, the therapist, uh, the therapist has everything that's, I, I remember really what people tell me during sessions. I know what key points I need to report. I never hold anything back. So we're dealing with them and, and, and bringing through the process in a way that they don't walk away upset or uh, angry that they have to leave me. Or It's really a respectful experience for both of us. I mean, I even have orgasms sometimes with clients. And you know, what that, about that, your... Yeah. No, that's just being a human being. Yeah, I, I'm always, you know, afraid people think it's a robotic thing that takes all the passion and the, but it's not passionate constantly. It's really taking them through places where they need to go in order to access their passion, access their relaxation, have fun. They see sex as a job or a chore, usually, or they're very afraid that they don't, they're inadequate. They don't know what to do for women, and I explain that communication is the best 
things they can possibly learn with me. You know, well, they, uh, not all women are alike. I just read a statistic. No, that's true. I read a statistic that, I mean, Americans, and I, I can't remember what the statistic is now, have, have the least amount of sex of any of any Western countries or whatever, you know, Europe. And, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and we're not, our sex is not only we have not too much of it, but we, I mean, we talk a lot about it, and this, but we yeah. don't really on, practice on a daily basis, whether we have married or a partner, whoever we are. So my next question is, just following up on that is, in your book, it says today there are few trained surrogates in the United States, and it's the uh, International Professional Surrogates Association (IPSA) puts the number at fifty. If we're yeah. all having, why? If we have because other problems, why do we, we have only... a culture that yeah. is just rot, rot with horrible negative negativity around sexuality? Not many men and women want to jump into this profession. I mean, you have to have a lot of courage, and I'm giving myself credit for having that to face face the public. And I'm so proud of what happens here. People are so walking around wounded. You're, you're right. People are not having and having a lot of sex, and when they have it, they're feeling they rush it. They get it over with quickly. And there are those few people who are out there saying they have wonderful sex lives, and I'm so happy for them. But the majority of people aren't having it. And once a woman hits menopause, it's sort of like, okay, we can stop right now. I don't have any <laughs> desire. If I had years of lousy sex and lack of communication, I'd be glad when my over died and I didn't have to have sex or I didn't feel like having sex. But I'm 68 and I have a wealth of wonderful experiences and I really still enjoy it. I don't have the energy for it the way I did when I was in my 20s, 30s and 40s, even my 50s, but we adapt as we get older. You don't have to give it up. And yeah, I just sex, keep, I think what sex I, evolves, doesn't it? I mean, sex at 20 is yeah. different than sex at 16 and different than sex oh. at 80. You know, and the I think one thing, and particularly in Americans, they don't tend to be creative about their sexual about sex. Period. Right. So people um, get into ruts. Yeah, and and sex is a job, and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. So you're still practicing now? Yes, I am. I still practice. In fact, I have a client this afternoon. Yeah. I don't pla- I don't have as many clients as I did in the past, but I do have. Um, I, you know, I see three people right now, and that's wonderful. And they're not my age either. Um, some of them, I just finished with a 93-year-old man, and I have a young man who's 45 that's coming to see me today. All right, today. so tell us what sex at 93 has the potential to be like, because we're going to have a lot more people in their 80s and 90s living that long. Yeah. And most of us think 80s and 90s, sex is over. That You know, you have to do something else. Or I mean, that's, isn't that, I mean, I think that's well, the it, attitude. It, 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 it's just like anything else. You said it. You hit the nail on the head. It does change over time, and and you, if you enjoy it, you don't look back and look at what you would be capable of when you were in your twenties, thirties, forties. You accept what's coming. My body has changed since I was. I've had a hip replacement. I have, you know, I've had breast cancer, so I had a mastectomy. I have, you know, a rebuilt breast, but it doesn't look like my old one, and it doesn't have the sensation. And I could just shrivel up and say, "The hell with this! I'm not going to show this." But I don't care. I think that I'm a human being who's worthy of being touched and cared for. And when I present that role model for my clients, I help them see that we can adapt and we can adjust, and you can have intimacies more than penis and vagina. It can be holding and kissing and touching. And we know that more women, many, many women, have an easier time having an orgasm, should they want one, from hand or oral stimulation. 
you know, penis and vagina is wonderful. It feels great, but you may not have orgasms that way. And we have to, I tell men always, do not put your ego on the line. If your partner does not have an orgasm, it doesn't mean she, you did anything wrong or you're not a good lover. Maybe you're listening and that's what's really important. And if a woman, I mean, I think women fake it because men expect them to have orgasms that way and a lot of women won't. And they don't even know that it's a natural thing not to for many women. They feel ashamed that they're not orgasmic. You know, all these magazines with how to satisfy your man, how to have orgasms all night long. I just push the aside. I don't even read them. I just know each person is individual in their own sexuality and they need to learn who they are and they need to be able to share that with somebody that they care about. I don't think you have to be in love to have sex, but I do feel you have to be in like. You have to respect the person. Yeah, you have to I mean, respect the person. I think that's yeah. the too that's kind of been perpetrated on all of us. You know, you have yeah. love equals good sex. We know that's not, everybody knows that's not true, but nobody mm. really wants to say it. No, um, that's true. Yeah, and I think as a surrogate, it sounds like what you do is give people, well, first of all, you're talking about intimacy, and it comes in a lot of different packages, right? And couples can be intimate in many, many different ways. You can be intimate with yourself, masturbation. Let's talk about that, because that's gotten a bad rap, too. Oh, yeah. I I think most of the people that I've ever dealt with, I ask clients often, um, did you masturbate in front of your parents? And they say, what? (laughs) And I say to them, well, you know, kids will if they haven't gotten messages very early that yeah. they shouldn't. I said, why did you think it was, a, you know, not okay? You are, you obviously, you're, you're shocked I asked the question. They said, I don't remember. I don't know. And I think it happens before children are preverbal. I mean, we know little boys get erections. We assume that little girls' va- vaginal barrel lubricates. Yeah. Um, when they're little, you know, they come out of the womb with an erection. It's all so stimulating, and their little bodies are, oh, just amazing, and they're discovering themselves. And they'll continue to discover themselves joyfully if parents would learn that it's natural and what you need to do is break that cycle of what's wrong? Why is he getting an erection? What am I doing that's wrong? I mean, nothing is wrong. And I think it's really important for parents to be the sex educators of their kids, but they really need some help with their own sexual issues so that they don't pass them on to their children. And, uh, you know, masturbation is a wonderful way for a man or a woman to learn about themselves and to be able to share that with a partner. I have a good friend, Betty Dodson, who wrote Sex for One and (laughs) Orgasms for Two. Those are two separate books. And I met her in 1973 and did a workshop with her. I've done several. She is in her 80s now. She's one of the most dynamic women I've ever met. I I remember meeting her when I was 29 and thinking, I want to be like Betty. I want to be Betty Dodson. She was so comfortable with herself. And I think I've kind of got, in my own way, I'm there now. I was going to say, it sounds like you've reached that point, at least to me, as you're describing comfortableness with your body. And that was my, what about your, your partner's? Uh, the, well, yeah. your intimate partners who you are with, who you love, husbands, yeah. partners, and your children. What's their reaction to mom be, and, and partner being a surrogate? Yeah, well, see, my daughter was, um, my son was five, and my daughter was eight when I started surrogate work. And when they saw me leaving this particular day, going over to my friend's apartment that I was using as my office, they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to work. What are you doing, Mom? Because they knew I did nude modeling. They didn't think anything of that. I mean, you know, children, you just talk to them and be honest with them. I said, oh, Mommy's helping people who don't feel good about their sexuality feel better about it. And they said, oh, okay. You know, that was it 
as they got a little older, I explained, but I did never overwhelm them with too much information. My daughter's 47, my son is 44, and, you know, they've known me and my practice all my life. They base their friendships upon that. I mean, they've had friends uh, for a very, very brief time who couldn't handle it. The majority, I mean, all the people that they're friends with now, they've, they've known for years, or they're people who think it's really wonderful and they understand, oh, wow, this is interesting, and they don't judge. That's the way I base my friendships. And my family has accepted it, my, my extended family, the family back in New England. Um, it, you know, over time they've seen me on television shows, they see, they know I'm not hiding anything from them. And they're reading my book now and they've seen the movie and they're thrilled. And now they're excited about it. Now you're famous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now they definitely accept it. But I was going to say, I, I would imagine both your kids probably should have a healthy, fantastic sex life, growing up with a mother who has the attitude that you do and who has the profession that she does. Yeah. I mean, I, we don't sit around and talk about it a lot. We have at times when something's happening and, and they have a question or they, they're concerned. One of the things I love is my children have a private life, but they come to me with questions that I never would have gone to my mother to like ask or my father. Like what kind of questions? Well, you know, one thing is the libidos of the people. You know, sometimes you marry somebody or you're with a partner who doesn't have the same libido that you have. Or maybe they're not as active as you want to be or vice versa. And we talk about how do you communicate about that. I mean, they're not with me, so they don't see how I practice, you know, what I'm doing when I'm teaching my clients or helping my clients. So I give them information like I would a client. You know, this it's really important to talk about what you enjoy and what you don't and not let things happen that you're not happy with. So we'll discuss that. I remember, you know, there comes in other words, they have much more sophisticated kinds of questions, and you yes, and you have a lot more, more sophisticated kind, yeah kinds of answers. No, yeah. uh, I have so many more questions, which I can't ask you. My next guest is is here. We only have a couple more minutes, so oh, that went by fast. It Catherine. went very fast. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, full of great information. Um, I have to call my boyfriend after the show, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just want to mention the book again because we, thank you. you know, we touched on it, but t- uh, Cheryl. Cohen Green, and the name of the book is An Intimate Life, Sex, Love, and My Journey as a Surrogate Partner. Also, Cheryl, is there a website, like, if we want to keep up with what you're doing? And, and, uh, yes, yes, it's just uh, CherylCohenGreen.com. And that has the book, I'm sure, which you can buy at bookstores everywhere online. What do we want to leave people with? I just want people to be happy in who they are, communicate better with each other, and enjoy this life. It's the only one we know we have. Thanks so much. Great having you on the show this morning. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So we're going to take a short break right now, but my next guest coming up is Daryl Lynn Weiss, and uh, her her new book is called The Heavy, A Mother, A Daughter, A Diet, and this is a memoir. Um, I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is my guest, Dara Lynn Weiss, and she's the author of The Heavy, A Mother, A Daughter, A Diet. And this is a memoir. Dara Lynn Weiss wrote an essay for Vogue magazine chronicling her decision to put her seven-year-old daughter, B on a diet after her doctor diagnosed her as obese. Uh, apparently, it was a controversial move, and ultimately, Dara was called the worst mom in the world. So we're going to welcome... The worst mom in the world. Welcome to the show, Dara. Nice <laughs> Thank to you very on. much. Nice to be here. Yeah. Is it Dara or Daralyn? Uh, Daralyn. Daralyn. Okay. Uh, I'm kind of obsessed with uh, this. You're a perfect guest to have on my show because I think this whole idea of, of weight and obesity and all of that is just it's a topic that I I have guests on all the time. So and uh, I really did enjoy your book, but the heavy a mother a daughter a diet a memoir. Um, why did you decide to write this book? It seems like, okay, so your daughter was diagnosed as obese at seven years old. Her BMI was, what, she was in the 98th percentile. Correct. Uh, and then you got all this flack for putting your daughter on a diet. I, uh, I, I think the interesting part of the story is the flack. I think the uh, idea, you know, certainly the idea, the statement, I put my seven-year-old daughter on a diet, there's something shocking about that and there's something upsetting about the idea that a parent would... Uh, have a child lose weight, but um, when you dig a little deeper, and indeed this is you know an issue of childhood obesity that we all talk about needing to to work on, and when a doctor tells you your child is in an unhealthy place, and another doctor helps you structure a program that will get your child to a healthy weight, it seems completely uncontroversial that you would follow their advice. Um, but Dylan, however, why but, at age seven? Because I always wonder about this. She's seven mm-hmm. years old, and she's. She's diagnosed as di- and I say diagnosed because it is a di- it's like a disease mm-hmm. uh, as obese. How did she get to that point? Here you are. You're a well-educated mother. You're a free. I didn't even say this. A freelance producer and a writer, intelligent, sophisticated, and yet your little girl is diagnosed as obese at age seven. I mean, you know what foods to eat, what foods not to eat. You, how did she get to that point? Did you not notice it? Did, were you afraid to do something about it? Let's start with that. Yeah. It's such an interesting question because it's so complicated, and I think before I had an obese child, I had very clear ideas about how children become obese, and I had very clear ideas about the parent's role in that. And um, we have this image that children become obese for fairly obvious reasons. They sit around, and they're lazy, and they play video games, and they eat junk food, and they have fast food instead of home-cooked meals, and that's how they get obese. And that was not 
my family's picture, and that was not Bee's trajectory. She was a healthy weight baby and infant and toddler, and I fed her what all parents are told to feed their children in terms of well-balanced, home-cooked meals and lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, and I had her take dance class and gymnastics class, and we went to the park, and, you know, it was there was not some glaring flaw in her lifestyle or her upbringing. She just was an overeater, and uh, once she turned, you know, as young as three, uh, you know, I still controlled most of the food she ate, but any time there was an opportunity for, you know, unhealthy foods, she gravitated towards them. And, uh, you know, I'd give her dinner and she would finish it and tell me she was still hungry. And she did not regulate her eating. Her teachers in preschool told that to me. That, you know, she would stay at the snack table long after every other kid. There was just a different approach to food that over time was really uh, causing her to gain weight. At the same time, you know, she's this little girl and, 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 you know, people have different body types and I certainly didn't feel that I was in a position, uh, certainly also as someone who had struggled with, uh, my own weight and eating, uh, I didn't want to be the one to say, I think this is problematic. I was sort of hoping, you know, she'll just grow out of it. This is just a phase. This is fine. She's healthy. And it was when her doctor, after many years of saying, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, finally said, this is not going in a direction that's healthy. You need to to now. You need to worry it. about it. Yeah, okay. and I, yeah. I took that advice because also, you know, I trusted my pediatrician as someone who, for the preceding three years, had said, "Yeah, she's overweight, but she's fine. She's healthy. Don't worry about it." And you know, when when the person who had told you not to worry about it tells you it's time to make some changes, you know, I certainly I was ready to hear that and, and ready to do something. So you had to do something. And and in this book, which in your book, which you describe what you did was interesting. It became a a family affair, kind of. I mean, you don't come from, and I'm going to say, a fat family necessarily. You say you struggled with your weight. I mean, I think most people struggle with their weight because this, the food is available everywhere all the time. And this is kind of the first time in history, I think, in in modern history, that that's true. Like here in in, in here in America, anyway. And so we're all kind of struggling to make those choices, I think. But you didn't come from a particularly. You weren't obese. Your husband wasn't obese. You have a son who's thin. Yeah. Um, but yet you decided to go to the nutritionist doctor as a family, uh, not simply taking and be your daughter by herself. Why did you decide to make it a family affair? For a couple of reasons. One was I very much didn't want B to feel singled out and stigmatized and that this was uh, something that, was wrong with her that that she needed help with. I wanted to present it as uh, this is a health issue, and uh, indeed, you know, we we need to get you to a healthier weight. But we all need to eat healthy, and we all need to be aware of um, what we're eating and what weight is healthy for us. And um, they did uh, struggle to maintain a healthy weight uh, in in my life, and my husband did as well. You know, I think um, I don't know if he quite qualifies but certainly overweight, and this was something that uh, we all needed to to be responsible for in our lives. And I wanted to present that as something that, you know, healthy eating and consciousness of a healthy weight is not something that only obese people need to worry about. It's something everyone needs to worry about. Do you think, Daryl, that that is kind of begging the question a little bit? That was one thing as I was reading, I was thinking, personally and from a social worker's perspective, that, like, it's still we're still afraid, and you use the word stigmatize. I mean, we're not afraid to say, and you do mention it in the book, we're not afraid to say, okay, my daughter was di- or my son is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or they have uh, 
uh, you know, attention deficit disorder, a whole myriad of diagnoses. But yet when it came to saying, okay, my daughter is obese, you couldn't just say she's obese. No one else in the family necessarily has a problem. Healthy eating is always an issue, but she's the one who has the problem. But yet there was that, like, I didn't want to stigmatize her. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's very tricky. And I, I, I tried to err on the side of actually uh, talking very freely about it because I wanted us to be comfortable with that uh that topic, and I think there has been a lot of uh, concern about my use of the word diet, saying you know we we went on this diet, and that that word shouldn't be used in relation to a child. And I sort of think, well, you know, isn't isn't a diet what we eat every day, and isn't uh, a healthy diet what we all aspire to? And why should my child be you know exempt from that word when any other child is you know we talk about their diet? Um, even well, as you say in the book, children who have yeah, who are allergic to peanuts, they have to go on a certain diet that doesn't include peanuts. I mean, isn't that true? Sure, and kids have you know increasingly you know gluten intolerances. They have to be on gluten free diets or low sugar diets, whatever it is. Um, I, I wanted to feel comfortable with that word. I wanted to um, remove the uh, sort of a complementary association with the word thin because that bothered me. I didn't want people sort of encouraging B to be thinner or thin, but just to think of it as healthy, and I didn't want there to be negativity around the word fat, quite frankly. I just felt that these words had these value judgments that I wanted to redefine within our family. Having said that, B was sensitive to them, and I think, you know, there's only so much I can do sort of within our family if... um, you know, someone at school calls her fat, that hurt her feelings. And uh, if, you know, she would talk, I write in the book about a day she came home crying because they were studying childhood obesity in school and just that very word really stung her because she felt, oh, they're talking about me, you know. And and, and so it was hard to, to what extent, you know, um, should I try to encourage her to be comfortable with these words and with uh, our situation and to what extent should I you know, kind of keep the lid on these things. It was, it was What about, though, I'm, I'm trying to, like, if you are fat, that's not good for you. And it, it, when someone calls you fat, maybe don't one has to kind of, ex- I am fat, and this isn't good for me, and I have to do something about it. And in this case, I have a choice. I can do something. It's not like someone calling you, you know, you're too short or you're right. ugly or all, you know, things that you can't change. You are what you are. But this is something you do have a choice. In the same way that if someone says you're an alcoholic, for instance, well, I have to admit I am an alcoholic. If I'm going to stop drinking, then I have to admit that I'm an alcoholic. If I'm going to lose weight, don't I have to admit that I'm fat? I, I have to tell you, I totally agree, and, and uh, that is exactly how I approached it. But I think um, it's, it's a controversial position. When, um, you know, I write in the book about the pain any parent would feel if their child comes home and says someone at school called me fat and then starts to cry. I mean, that's a heartbreaking moment. And that there is a difference in responding to that child if that child is at a healthy weight. Um, You know, if little girls, unfortunately, do criticize their bodies at very young ages now and and call themselves fat and to be able to respond and say, you are healthy, you are not fat, you're, you know, and, and, and be able to kind of bolster their self-esteem knowing that they are at a healthy weight, that's very different from when your child is obese. And indeed, you're right, you know, you, I, I say in the book, I, I wanted to just be like, you're not fat, but the fact is she was obese, you know, how do you respond? It's, it's very tricky. And I um, agree with you, I kind of explained to her, 
you know, you feel so uh, alone and you feel so like you have this problem and no one else does. But you know what? Everyone's got something. Everyone has a problem. And this is something you can manage. And uh, that I, exactly as you said, you, uh, I told her, you know, we're almost lucky that, that this is a problem that we can work together on. And there are lots of problems that unfortunately kids have that, that they can't uh, get such help with and, and that we, we do have some control over um, how we manage ourselves and how we feel about ourselves. Yeah. And I think, and I want to, you know, the Vogue magazine article, which I guess chronicled your experience, obviously, with uh, putting uh, B on a diet. And uh, why do you, and, and when the article came out, there was such a, a, a backlash and, and calling you the worst mom in the world. Did you expect that? I mean, was that something that you thought would happen by, like, sharing this experience? Because they, no, they thought I, you were I the really, worst mom. Why? I still you know, I, I don't know how uh, to account for the fact that it got so extreme. That you know, uh, you know, certainly I made lots of mistakes, and I uh, tried to be very honest about them, and kind of allow people to discuss my methods and my decisions, and say, well, I wouldn't have done that, or I question that, but have kind of a discussion um, about it and debate certain points of childhood obesity and, and weight management for children. Um, the extremes to which it went to were very surprising. This whole worst mother in the world thing it just kind of demonstrates. The, uh, the fact that this issue is so emotional, it so, um, hits people so personally, and that it's very hard to approach it either as a parent going through it or as a parent reacting to someone else going through it. It's very hard to do it um, in a really objective, uh, unemotional way. And I had found that, that um, you know, I wanted very much to treat it like diabetes, but it's not. It's, it's more emotional, it's more personal, and uh, people respond to it in much more... Uh, angry and uh, emotional ways. It, it's interesting. I see it similar, and I, it, it's not exactly the same thing, and I mentioned this earlier, but it is similar to even drugs and alcohol. If your kid is drinking, if your kid is doing drugs, you have to do something about it. You have to help them stop, and you have to admit that there is a problem. And yet I think that, and, and just as a culture, there's something about we don't want to admit that we're fat, that we're obese, and that we have to stop. And mm-hmm. I, 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 not just in your case, but I think just generally. And that if we don't, we're going to be, we are going to, I, this, I, I know I'm perhaps preaching to the choir, but we're going to be sick emotionally and physically and, and our intellect is affected by it, all of those kinds of things. But for some reason, we don't want to admit that we are fat. <laughs> I think something B said very early on when we kind of presented the idea of going to a nutritionist, she, she, felt really bad about it, and I said, why is it so upsetting? And she said, I want to just be able to do it myself. That um, she actually had was at the point where she acknowledged there was a problem, but there was some shame that she couldn't control it herself. And I think there is an analog to um, alcoholism or, or drug abuse, that this is something other people seem able to manage on their own. Why can't I? Why am I the one who needs to go to, like, a special expert to help me with this? And that, uh, you know, people do feel bad about that. And I tried to explain to her that there's so much bravery in in that acknowledgement that um, there is a problem and that you do need help and that the shame is in 
denying that need um, that that you know she said I'm embarrassed that I have to go and I said you know you should be embarrassed if you walking around saying I don't have a problem I don't need help I think there's something very brave about acknowledging this problem and acknowledging that we tried to fix it on our own and we do need help and you did and so now what's the after how old is B now she's eight or nine she's nine now and she uh, you know is probably two years a little over two years ago that we sort of began this journey and I'm very Happy to say she's at a healthy weight now. Um, even happier to say that she uh, really has independently integrated these changes into her own decision-making. That when she was seven, it was a lot about me making choices for her, me putting the right food in front of her, and that now it's more about her being out in the world on her own and being able to make uh, these decisions. And I'm extremely gratified. I mean, as a parent, that's really... Uh, all you can ask for is that you give your child tools and that you just hope they can use them. And, and at this point, uh, she's doing a great job. Well, that's, I mean, it's a great ending, a great story. Um, and I think one of the things I wanted to point out in the book that you talk about, I mean, there's, all, you know, there's a lot of different fads and those kinds of diets and stuff, but it really doesn't it have to do with when you're making those choices or when B is making those choices out in the real world. It's, it's what you eat, it's, but it's also how many calories you eat, and the portion control is a huge thing, literally. Um, and those are the kinds of things that we have to kind of, I think most of us have to be on guard every day in terms of the choices we make with food. Um, and you have I to agree, be, and I yeah. think so, so much of the discussion about healthy eating and childhood obesity doesn't pay enough attention to that. It's about, uh, you know, processed food versus fruits and vegetables, and it's about activity and better choices, and it doesn't, I think that's, uh, that adds up to a healthy lifestyle for most kids, but not for all kids, and that some kids, uh, their problem really is quantity and um, knowing limits and understanding moderation, and that's a bit more painful as, as a parent to kind of tell your child stop eating rather than eat differently. Um, and, and but I think it's necessary for some kids. It was certainly I felt in in B's case that on paper she was eating all the right things, doing all the right things, but uh, ultimately she needed to watch her amounts, and that's. Uh, that's something that doesn't, I think, get talked about enough in, in the issue of childhood obesity. Yeah, well, I don't think we like to talk about moderation because moderation isn't fun. <laughs> it like isn't fun, do... especially not for kids. And, yeah, you know, not you, for kids, you think not about... for adults. I mean, <laughs> that's true. But especially you feel like, you know, the innocence of a child is somewhat, you know, caught up in going to a birthday party and having cake and having ice cream and every day in the park in the summer and that that's not a good choice for every child. And, and it's it's... it's Sad. I mean, I take, as B does, take great joy in food. And there is some diminishment of her momentary joy when she wants to stop for a cupcake and we decide it's not the right choice. And, and there, that's a bit of a, a letdown. And you want, as a child, to just be able to say yes and, and have everything. And that's unfortunately not the case for children struggling with this issue. No, and I think, uh, and you know, my kids are of a different generation. I'm not so sure there was as much of an, uh, there was definitely an emphasis on, on dieting and, and maintaining your weight. But I don't think there was always this whole thing about snacking every five minutes. I mean, I remember taking, I have three boys, getting in the car with the three boys when they were, say we had a half an hour drive going somewhere. I was very conscious about not bringing snacks along so that they didn't associate that every activity they did had to have a snack. Maybe you could go from point A to point B without a snack. And I noticed today, uh, with, uh, I see some of the younger mothers, you know, always you've got to, bag of stuff and a bag of goodies and maybe you could be co- focusing on something else maybe the ride to where you're going or looking around at what you're 
experiencing rather than eating all the time. I think that's a very good point, and I think I um, am as guilty as any other mom of being very kind of snack focused, <laughs> and uh, be, you know the, the 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 bag of stuff for the kids always has a snack in addition to everything else, um, and that uh, it, it is um, a question about how do we approach these these moments in our in our lives and how willing are we to tell our children that they can't eat in a given moment. I think um, that's something that I was criticized widely for is that there were moments where I told my child, you can't eat now. You know, I, you're telling me you're hungry and maybe you even are hungry, but you're going to eat dinner in half an hour. You just had a snack 20 minutes ago, whatever it is, um, and that that's an uncomfortable thing to tell a child for many parents and um, and that the kind of culture of, you know, gratification is uh, indeed part of the problem, as well as the fact that, you know, we associate movie going with eating, we associate birthdays with cake, we associate parties with food, and that um, it might be time to rethink some of those associations. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, just that you mentioned even in a movie theater, not just kids, but grown-ups can't seem to sit in a movie for two hours without eating. Mm-hmm. And making the popcorn the noisy and the paper going, and I sometimes sit there and think, could maybe you just need to stop eating for two hours and enjoy the show and focus on the whatever the movie is and then we would you know it maybe we won't be so we as a as a culture won't be as be so fat i think another thing is and i don't know if you mentioned this in the book but the way we eat i mean you you know this processed food and then the good food and 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 organic food and stuff but i think another piece of it is our food isn't very tasty anymore. I think that's an issue. So it doesn't really satisfy us. You know, you were talking about B saying, you know, I'm still hungry, I'm, you know, after she's already eaten a meal or whatever she's eaten. But I think to some degree, because our food is so bland and, and, and some of the, even our fruits and our vegetables are not really very tasty. And so there, we don't get that satisfaction from food unless you really sit down and, you know, have take a lot of time to prepare some kind of a, a healthy gourmet meal. Um, you know, you used to be able to grab a carrot or a tomato or even just say 20 years ago, and it tasted good. But today, the stuff is not very tasty. That's, That's interesting. And I think the things that are tasty are, are not the healthiest ones. Uh, so, uh, you know, there may be something to that. If you're, you want something sweet, you know, fruit doesn't do it for you anymore when there's so many uh, sugary processed things uh, competing with it. Yeah. Well, I myself, I've always made, you know, I'm going to have dessert, but it's got to be a really good dessert, usually something that I made or a friend made that I know is really good or if it's at a really great restaurant. Otherwise, it's not worth the calories. I'm not going to just eat some crummy dessert. Um, But there's just so many issues. What would be your suggestion? I mean, now, I mean, you've done, I mean, I commend you, I mean, in in terms of what you've done for your daughter, I I think that... uh, um, are you continuing with it? You know, I mean, obesity is our number one problem uh, in in the United States, health problem, I think, in the in the United States. Um, so, besides what you've done for B, are you going further and doing anything else to help alleviate this problem? Or, you know, I approached it very much as an individual problem um, because I think this one size fits all approach to to obesity in terms of uh, Stereotyping what causes it and what will alleviate it um, is a little oversimplified. So my only advocacy is really for individual responsibility among each, uh, you know, within each family. That um, I, you know, look at the world and there are so many big things that 
I would change that would help my child, but those are not necessarily uh, suitable for other children. And so I, I see it as my responsibility every day to to help my child manage her issue um, out in the world. Um, and, you know, the only advice I give, you know, I certainly don't, I'm no expert on childhood obesity or weight loss or anything like that, but the only advice I do give is that each family has to know what's right for their child and that, you know, it's never fun to deal with childhood obesity. The child is not happy about it. The parent is not happy about it. The grandparents aren't happy about it. Your peers are going to judge every decision you make, but you have to be the heavy. You have to stand by what you know is right in the moment for, for your child and not um, sort of bow to the pressures and the, the difficulties that are, you know, enormous in this issue. Yeah, I think that's well said. What would you say was, if you can, your biggest mistake in this process, something perhaps you wouldn't do now? Um, that's a great question that nobody has actually asked. You know, people say, do you regret uh, your decision? And I say, I regret you know, 25 things a day, but, you know, the big picture was so, um, you know, so so worth uh, the, the, the missteps that I made. I think um, uh, the, the only thing I would do is to be more sort of accepting of the process. I think I, I was so, uh, there was so much anxiety wrapped in it uh, about my daughter's well-being as well as how well I was parenting her around this issue and that um, I, I did let these individual moments stress me out and make me doubt what I was doing and that uh, now in retrospect those moments seem so insignificant compared to the big picture of how I brought up my daughter and the extent to which she feels loved and supported and respected and valued and um, cared for um, and that I think I wish I had sort of taken it a little more easy on her and on me in terms of uh, looking at the big picture rather than the, the small moments. Well, I think when you go through something for the first time, you know, I think what you've described is kind of typical. And I think one of the things that came, at least for me, when I was reading the, your book was that, you know, you were doing what you thought was right and it was working but then when and, and this happens all the time I think in these situations and I even as an adult will go to people's houses and I'm going to you know who perhaps serve dessert and I'm uh, you know I'm middle aged I keep my weight I'm short I weigh 106 pounds but I have to watch it I mean I have to be very careful so I don't allow other people to tell me what to eat and it is mm-hmm. a very difficult thing to do and you point that out in the book you go to somebody's house and they want to give you one more portion of whatever they're serving or they want you to eat the dessert and I'm not going to eat the dessert just to be polite because I don't want to wake up two pounds heavier the next day but that's kind of some of the things that you point out in the book that happened with B that was you know um, people forcing food on her when you knew what she needed and what she didn't need to eat Yes, and they always do it with the kindest of intentions, yes. and, and, and so it is awkward, and I think I was willing to uh, suffer that awkwardness, and I can understand that a lot of parents don't want to, or a lot of people don't want to do that. They don't want to tell us very gracious hostess, like, she's had enough, please don't serve her another pot, piece of pie. Um, yeah. it, it feels weird, and it causes awkwardness, and I think that was something that uh, 
we don't expect and that we do have to put up with as parents. But, you know, that it's, it's again, one of these kind of universal issues that in my family it was specific to obesity, but there's any number of other situations in which that can happen as a parent and, and you got to stick to yeah. your guns. you got to stand, yeah, stick to your guns. We have, uh, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. This went by very quickly. I want to mention yes. the book again, The Heavy, A Mother, A Daughter, A Diet, A Memoir, Darylyn Weiss. Uh, do you have a website we can go to as well? Uh, just a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Dara Lynn Weiss, all one word. Um, and uh, it has just interviews and appearances and such. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Yep. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Dara Lynn Weiss, The Heavy. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great day, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.